The edition is sponsored by Charles Stanley, one of the UK's leading wealth managers, providing bespoke investment management and financial advice. Find out more at charles-stanley.co.uk. Hello and welcome to The Edition, The Spectator's weekly podcast discussing some of the most important and intriguing issues within our pages with the writers behind them. I'm Cindy Yu. On this week's episode, we take a look at the European experience and ask what are the lessons learnt there that apply to Britain. We also take a look a little further afield at the developing world. How has lockdown impacted those countries? And at the very end, is this period a renaissance for car driving? First up, Swedish economist Fredrik Eriksson writes in this week's cover piece that the European experience has shown that while everyone is flying in the dark, regional approaches to dealing with coronavirus, rather than national, may be better. He joins me down the line now, together with Anne McElvoy, senior editor at The Economist and head of Economist Radio. So Fredrik, can you tell us about the lessons from Europe? Well, I I suppose the first good news is that Europe is gradually beginning to open up again and that many countries are on their way out of a lockdown. Uh, It's going to be a slow, gradual process where every government is going to test their way forward because simply science is not giving us any sort of clear direction. There is not a scientific path to get out of lockdown, even if all governments, of course, are going to keep a very strong control about over how the virus spreads and uh, what is going to happen to hospitals, etc. We are talking about a scenario here where most governments are trying to adjust their policies out of the lockdown with local political cultures. So I think sort of that's that's the first thing which is happening. The good news then for Britain should be that there is a big experiment, almost a laboratory experiment going on right now in Europe, which Britain can learn from. And I think one of the lessons that have already been highlighted in Britain is around the importance of mass testing and getting a much better control over uh, who is infected by the virus and what type of people they meet and how they spread the virus to others. The other thing I think uh, which Britain should pay close attention to is how many European governments are trying to regionalize their efforts because the virus itself is more regional than national. Almost every country finds that uh, they've had regional outbreaks. Mostly large cities have been really, really affected, while many other parts of the countries haven't been affected at all. And they can start to move out of the lockdowns also in a regional way, where they give uh, local authorities much greater power in deciding how to end the lockdown and how they will continue to keep track of the virus in the future. I think, so I think that's the, the other main lesson, that we don't find sort of a coordinated European approach, but we don't have sort of national approaches either. We have much more of local, regional approaches. And on the British side, the government so far shied away from a regional easing. That is until the devolved administration's forced divergence this week, essentially by not following the English easing of the lockdown. Why do you think there's such reluctance from the government to go for a regional approach? The British system is very centralised, although of course it's the United Kingdom and sometimes in its approach to things the somewhat disunited kingdom. But within that, there is a sort of expectation National Health Service, you know, the clues in the name, that you move a bit in lockstep. Now, as it's turned out, particularly Scotland and Nicola Sturgeon has been clear that she didn't want to change the messaging the way that Boris Johnson did. But I think there is still a worry, even if you just took England as the largest entity, that having regional variation would be confusing, 
you've had a strong central messaging and you would be then having to say to people, well, if you live in the northwest, your message is going to be rather different to if you live in, in London or if you live in a rural area, it's going to be different yet again. There are certainly good arguments for that. And if you've got it built into your system, like the German lender, you're used to this often cacophonous conversation between the lender about how they see things and how they see their relationship with the centre. If you're in England, that's less so. And the fact that we haven't had regional government at any big level, I think, makes it a lot harder. But there is certainly something to recommend it, you've just got to be aware that there are going to be winners and losers from that too. Frederick, I mean, I suppose one of the worries about a regional approach is that without Chinese-style controls on who goes in and who goes out, presumably people are just going to go to the places with looser lockdowns from the places with tougher laws. I think that would be the case if if different parts of one country were moving in opposite direction. But that's not really the case. I mean, everyone is now trying to find a way to ease the lockdowns and to create more freedoms for people to, you know, just go out and enjoy life and civilization. But the other thing, I think, which we've already seen during the sort of beginning of this pandemic and also when every government was worried about problems with having intensive care units being overwhelmed, etc., was that when you allow some parts of the country to test their way forwards, it becomes sort of a learning experience for everyone. So we've, we saw that in Germany, where many of the lenders were pretty slow to go for a mass testing approach. They didn't have you know, the resources or perhaps they didn't have the logistics or the infrastructure to do it. But then they could see how other lenders were you know, how they managed to scale up without basically breaking the local bank in order to do that. So they could basically just copy what they, they had done and sort of work with the same type of companies that you had in, in, in that state. But I think it depends, Frederick, where people's identity lies. And there's something that you raise in your piece about Germany. You say the reason Germany does so well with testing is in part it doesn't have a centralised health service. Well, yes, but actually one, the role of insurers is very important and that sense of customer satisfaction is perhaps therefore brought into the the mix a bit more as the National Health Service is very good at getting people to do things all together. It's less good at perhaps sorting out preferences than an insurance-based system. But of course, there is complexity in an insurance-based system. And it does mean that your example, which is good when it comes to copying best practice, also means that lender, which are less well-organised, will have lagged, you know, will have more problems. And so you come down, do people identify with where they live? And do they feel that that is the place that they're going to judge the success by? I suspect that's true, you know, having lived, you know, just quite a long time in, in Germany, that they're more, that's their mentality. And that perhaps the... The problem with the United Kingdom is it's got this mix of uh, the four parts of the United Kingdom, but it also has this desire to sort of say, this has got to be national. The whole country has got to get out this at the same time. So I might argue that Boris Johnson's bar is a bit higher to success than some other leaders. Frederick? I think, no, I think, I think that's right. And I think that may be sort of one of the problems that the British government has created for itself that when you when you take a national approach, you set the bar so high that it becomes, you know, practically impossible uh, to find a way out of, of a lockdown like this. 
I mean, even even in other countries, we sort of take France as a as an example. You know, typically a very a country that usually takes a very national approach to everything, mm-hmm. but they have also found now that they need to relax um, some of the restrictions in an uneven way uh, in the country, and it's partly because you know if you live in in the southwest of France and you are far away from any region which has had a high infection rate the morale for sort of keeping up with the lockdown isn't very strong and mm. and you simply sort of can't expect anyone there to shelter at home just because people in Paris are going to be exposed to the virus if they begin to return to normalcy again. And I think that's sort of, you know, the example of France may be better than Germany if we look to Britain or perhaps the example mm. of Sweden where we've largely done the same errors as Britain has done with trying to centralize you know procurement of PPE or ventilators and respirators and everything took just such a long time and you know when we got shipments from other countries it turned out they didn't work in instead sort of of keeping with the old system which was that that regions were purchasing their own things uh, which they could have done if, unless the government had basically forced them to go for centralised testing. Well, they would still come onto the same supply problems, though, wouldn't they? I was uh, talking to someone who, very senior in the government who's connected to procurement. We say, said, I said, what did you say well, you know, when you realised it had gone wrong with the, the, the Turkish example, which became a bit of a, a pratfall for the British government of gowns that were clearly unsafe, sleeves too short. He said, another load of you can imagine the word, arrives, you know, he said, and no matter who's ordered it, he said, you know, really, you are literally almost, I thought it'd be like one of those movies in which you open up the boot of the car, you know, and it's just a load of really bad merchandise. <laughs> but this is very serious stuff. And and I think global supply chains are so stretched that whoever you are, you're going to have a problem. It, it doesn't pull against what you say. I mean, you could still perhaps argue that it might be better accounted for at regional level. I wonder if you'd get a much better result. That's all. Yeah, there is actually a, a good case uh, about this in Sweden, which is that, you know, after a couple of weeks when Stockholm and a few other regions, they didn't get any supply from the central government after they had took over the procurement, they decided to basically, you know, do it on their own. Uh, and and suddenly and suddenly they began to find sort of alternative supplies which the government hadn't hadn't thought about and oh well there you go that's a good a good answer to my question can I ask you something about Sweden just while we're on the subject where do you come down because there was initially a view particularly from sort of freedom loving Brits who uh, rather liked the idea that might we could we don't have to have the lockdown you know we could all just get back to work the sort of iron ran tendency there then seemed to be a bit of a wobble in terms of the death rate particularly of older Swedes. So where did you come out on that when you looked at the relative success and failures uh, of all these very interesting models that you discussed? Well, I mean, I my view uh, has has been uh, for a long time sort of that I, I think the Swedish government made the right decision not to lock down the entire country. I think there could have been a case for partial lockdowns in, you know, parts of Stockholm, for instance, where when the infection rate was spreading very fast there. But generally, I don't think, you know, having a lockdown, not having a lockdown hasn't sort of become the main issue for almost a month now. The main issue has been that nursing homes and elderly people that have home care, they are the ones that have died. So around between 75 and 80 percent of all people that have died and tested positive with COVID, they are people that have been living in nursing homes or have had uh, home care. 
So, and that's, that's basically where everything failed. Now you can make the point that, well, if the country had locked down, it, we would have spared ourselves that problem. But I don't think there's no one really making that case. Uh, most people just assume that since there was a cock-up in sort of protocols, uh, access to uh, protective gears and equipment for people working in, in nursing, home, nursing homes, that problem would still have been there. Uh, if we had gone for a lockdown. The other thing is that uh, I think we are, compared to a few other countries, we're not going to have uh, such a huge backlog of other healthcare problems coming out of this crisis that even if we had to scale up intensive care uh, beds quite radically, uh, most of, sort of most hospitals and sort of around the country, they have had great opportunities to take care of sort of patients in the same way they did in the past because they haven't had that many COVID patients. So, uh, but if we had lockdown, it would also have problems of, of uh, taking care of other patients. Frederick and Anne, thanks very much. And to hear that interview with Dan Crenshaw that Anne mentions, just go to The Economist Asks podcast. Try four weeks of The Spectator absolutely free. And for this month only, you'll receive a Spectator wireless phone charger. Go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash charger. Next, there's a lot of estimates and analysis going around about what sort of crash we're facing and the sort of recovery that might come after. But in this week's issue, the economists Jayanta Bhattacharya and Miko Pakalan take a look at what this all means for the developing world. Jayanta joins me down the line from Stanford University now, together with leading Indian economist Ashwini Deshpande. So Jay, you write that the economic debate over lockdown isn't lives versus money, but lives versus lives. And nowhere is this more obvious than when you look at the impact on the developing world. Can you talk us through your argument? The lockdowns will create and have already created a global economic catastrophe, a global depression on the scale we have not seen in decades. The effect of that is wealthier countries are healthier. Uh, that, that adage is absolutely true, and we're about to find that out in spades. And this is especially true for the poor around the world who depend for their health on a, a vibrant economy. And I think uh, uh, you've already started to see that in reports from around the world in at-risk children suffering from hunger, t- tuberculosis making a comeback in India, I think what we're, we're going to about to see is uh, what the world will look like when it's poor and how bad it is for the poor around the world, the health of the poor around the world. It's lives versus lives, not just money versus lives. Ashwini, would you agree with that, looking as you do from just outside New Delhi? Oh, absolutely. I think that's absolutely the right way to pose it, which is it's lives versus lives. In addition to the points that Jay has uh, mentioned, I would also like to mention that What's happening in the fight against COVID is that many other essential you know, diseases, outbreaks, are getting ignored. For example, this is the mosquito season in India. And now we are getting reports about dengue and chikungunya, which are also killer diseases, malaria, because the basic staff that would have actually sprayed anti-mosquito sprays is just not available for work. So that's a very, very simple example. TB uh, um, treatment is suffering. Also cancer. You know, many of the hospitals are across cities and patients go to another city to get their chemotherapy treatment. Now, because of lockdowns, what's happening is that they're unable to access treatment. And most importantly, in primary health care, which is vaccinations for children, routine hospital visits are completely stopped because the primary health care workers 
are on the forefront trying to combat COVID, you know. Women don't have access to contraceptives. And so there's a whole range of health emergencies, even if you didn't count the economic costs of lockdown, which Jay very rightly pointed out are substantial. From where I sit in London, Ashwini, the British government talks about excess deaths, you know, the the amount of deaths that were not meant to have happened according to last year's average. Do you see the Indian government taking that sort of metric as well to see not just the direct COVID deaths, but also the indirect ones that are excess to the average? I know that independent researchers have started making these uh, calculations. So mortality yet has not really kicked in in that. So there's not excess mortality so far, but I'm not saying that that won't change. I mean, yesterday a package got announced and we'll see what shape it takes in terms of assistance. But I think we are very much on the brink right now. And if we get pushed beyond the brink, then excess mortality can kick in. But as far as I know, the government is not releasing those data. But independent researchers are making a tabulation of mortality from other causes as well. And Jay, in the United States, people have started to make those calculations. And actually, excess mortality has gone up in the United States already. This is one of these things where we're focused so monomaniacally on just COVID deaths and just COVID deaths just right now that we're missing the big picture. Those excess deaths, uh, Ashwini, you, you, you laid out the, the, the facts very, very well. Just, just take cancer alone, right? Those deaths are going to happen over the next year. Cancer mortality had been coming down for the first time in, in decades, actually in century uh, in the United States. That is certain to be reversed. People are, are skipping their uh, screening tests and people actually, people with cancer are skipping chemotherapy in the United States. Uh, I can't imagine what it's going to be like in the developing world. The suffering will be on a scale that we have not seen in, in, in a very, very long time. And it's not just, it's not COVID that causes it. We should be clear, it's, it's, the, it's the lockdown policies that are responsible for these deaths. How can we distinguish between those two things, between the impact of the lockdown and the impact of the virus itself? Because lots of scientists would say that without the lockdown, the pandemic itself would be wiping out the economy. I mean, I think there's something to that. I think people would have social distance without, you know, blunderbuss lockdowns. And, and that would have slowed the economy down. There's absolutely, that's absolutely true. But to say that the lockdown had no economic effect is, is, is just not right. I mean, that's, that's just, it, it contravenes all the evidence that we've seen. And if that's true, why even do a lockdown? Why not just let the social distancing happen? I mean, I think that argument is not the right, is, is just not persuasive. Yeah. And I would just like to add to this, you know, there's, there's been a lot of focus on mortality and that's absolutely valid. But I think that the health costs go beyond mortality. So, for example, if polio of India had almost eradicated polio. Now, supposing that this batch of children missed their polio vaccinations because of the health workers being involved with COVID, that's going to cr- literally cripple a generation of kids. You know, so it's going to have very adverse consequences. So childhood malnutrition. Uh, missing vaccinations, this may not lead directly to mortality, but it will definitely lead to a debilitation later in life, which is going to have very serious adverse long-term consequences. Those are also health costs. Mm. And Ashwini, one thing that you know is close to your research, I think, is the social divides. And do you think that social divides, uh, from what you've seen, is between old and young, between male and female, for example, rich and poor, do you think they've been exacerbated by the pandemic and the lockdown? Not so much about old and uh, young, I would say, but certainly in terms of this, there are gendered impacts of the lockdown. One is directly the health dimension, which is women's access to healthcare, non-COVID healthcare, 
definitely goes down because it becomes not a priority item anymore. So that's one thing. There are already reports of contraceptive shortages. And for a country like India, which did succeeded in bringing down its fertility to 2.1, I think there are, you know, there, there are consequences of that. The other very important aspect is a rise in domestic violence. And that has implications for women's physical health as well as mental health and, of, and, those, and, and that of children. Because it's not just, it's violence, it's also abuse. And so to be locked in with a partner who's abusive, regardless of whether he's violent or not, has very serious health consequences as well. In the last uh, economic collapse, the, the Great Recession of just 10 years ago, we saw a, a, a phenomenon of basically people, people being depressed, opioid epidemic rising. We saw, we saw essentially death, what they're called deaths of despair. Uh, there's a famous economist named Angus Deaton and uh, Anne Case at Princeton documented this. And that, that corresponds to the unemployment, actually, the lack of connection with the workforce. I, I expect very fully that that will happen around the world as a result yeah. of the, the economic harm that's been done by the lockdowns. Mm-hmm. And Jay, one thing I found fascinating in your piece was that you were making this global link that it's not just the domestic lockdowns, for example, in India or these developing countries that's harming the economy, but also because in our globalized world, a westernized lockdown also harms other countries as well. Can you elaborate on that? You you laid it out really well, Cindy. We are in a global economy. We depend on one another for our supply chains, for, for basic goods, medicines, you name it. Uh, when the the West shuts down, it hurts the developing world. I mean, it's just not it's not debatable. What we're going to see is the kinds of things that supported the economies of, of the global South are, are going to collapse, as as uh, as America, as as the UK, as the West starts to starts to sort of shrink back from the globalized economy. Uh, trade is good for everybody. I mean, that's, the, that's this, one of the central dogmas of, of economics. I mean, it's not entirely true, but it's, there's a lot of truth to that in, in large part. In particular, trade makes the world wealthier. And as I said, wealthier is healthier. That is a, uh, an aspect of sort of the moral obligation I think the West has, and it needs to consider it in, the, in its policy. A deliberate policy to essentially kill the economies of the West for fear of, of COVID will harm everyone around the world. Uh, that's true, of course, for India. You know, India is, is not just a poor country. It's a, it's a rising world power. So India also has its obligations as well. I think we, we've lost sight of the moral dimensions of the economic engine that we've built. It's, it's, it's made lives better around the world. People live longer. People are healthier as a result of it. And we're about to find out what happens when that stops. And it's not just money. And the final question to both of you, I suppose, uh, you know, Jay, you sort of touched on it in your in your article that the public debate around this has been cautious and limited because talking about the downside of lockdown is often seen as the precursor to saying that the lockdown shouldn't happen. As economists and as public health academics, how do you weigh that balance? You know, how, what sort of conversation should we be having? And is it really the case that because of the economic costs that we shouldn't be doing what we're doing at the moment in terms of public health perspective? Maybe Ashwini can go first. Sure. No. So a lockdown is not a zero one thing. I mean, India, for example, has a much stricter lockdown than the, even the United States has. Mm. So there is stringency of lockdown. So I don't think it's anybody's case that there should be zero lockdown. That's not the point at all. I think we can balance the degree of stringency with all the other needs of the economic needs, the health needs, etc. And I think it's the matter of finding the right balance. But you know, something that Jay said, and I'd like to repeat that, at the end of the day, that balance can only be achieved if you put humanity center stage. 
you know, we must look at people as human beings and that they have needs, they have health needs, they have economic needs. When we think of them as human beings, we can try to achieve that balance. So I wouldn't say it's zero, either lockdown or no lockdown. I think it's a question of the stringency and the economic fiscal stimulus that the governments give in order to protect people against the negative effects of lockdown. Ashwini, that's beautifully put, right? We think of, we should think about the complete human being when we're making policy. Uh, an economist would put it in a much more uh, uh, clumsy way. We should consider <laughs> both the costs and the benefits of the, of the lockdown policies. And we adopt, as, as, as Ashwini said, not a one-zero decision. It's a decision that, that accounts for both the benefits of the lockdown or part, partial lockdowns in saved COVID lives, or lives you know, not dying from COVID, versus the costs in, uh, that, that we've been discussing throughout this podcast. All of the focus on the modeling has been on the COVID, COVID deaths. Mm. And there's, as we know, great uncertainty around that modeling. There has been literally no consideration of the other side. We've only considered the benefits of the lockdown. We've not considered the cost in the policymaking. Mm. And I think that needs to change. Ashwini and Jay, thank you very much. And last, while the roads are empty, Alexander Pelling Bruce has rediscovered his love of driving. He writes about this renaissance in this week's issue and joins me now on the podcast, together with transport journalist Christian Warmer. Alexander, can you tell listeners what you've been up to? Yeah, so um, it started in London, where actually I had been recovering from the virus and I... So you're immune? <laughs> uh, possibly I'm immune. I mean, no one knows, though. I mean, if you go by the Professor Lockdown's excuse that he gave for his lover coming over. I mean, he thought he, he was immune after that, so I'm quite willing to trust him. And I sort of, you know, I'd been cooped up, you know, isolating for, for a few weeks, and I just realised, you know, with the, with the sort of distancing measures and it not really being sensible to sort of go out and see people and even go to the shops thinking that I might still be infected, I found that the only way to kind of sort of have some relaxation and kind of take my mind off things was to get in my car and do some joyriding. Uh, I made a coronavirus playlist as well, well which, which <laughs> I referred to in, in my piece. So Ghost Town by The Specials was track number one. I had Toxic by Britney Spears and Don't Stand So Close To Me by The Police. <laughs> and after that, I ended up in the Scottish Highlands um, where I decamped for a while to go and visit my lovely mother and sort of really got the, the love for driving there. And you also mentioned that it's a good time for driving as well. MOT holidays, fuel prices Absolutely, going down, yeah. emissions and other charges suspended. Absolutely. I mean, it really is sort of the perfect time to, to drive. And the roads are pretty barren still. I think there's a bit of, you know, traffic that's getting back to sort of relatively normal levels, or at least you know, there's a noticeable increase, I think. But particularly in the countryside... I think people are still pretty scared about going out. It's a, good, it's a good way to also explore the countryside. One of the things I noticed was that in London, you know, given that the, the average speed of traffic in London is eight miles an hour, so most of the time you're stuck and you can drive, you know, so you're itching to drive really fast. And so when, when I did get out in London, you know, I was actually, you know, I, I was stepping on it you know, quite hard and competing with all the exotic people driving white cars. When I got to Scotland and the roads were empty and the normal thing to do there is to drive quite fast, you know, you know at 60 miles an hour, I realised I actually wanted to drive really slowly and ended up sort of, you know, just chugging along and, and sort of taking in the scenery a bit more. With no one honking with, me. Yeah, no one honking me and, and it was just very serene. Christian, you wrote recently that the last thing we need is more cars. Do you worry about the direction of travel, if you excuse the pun, for drivers? Uh, 
Yes, I do. I mean, I think it's fine for Alexander to uh, enjoy driving. I'm very glad to hear that uh, he's uh, obviously sticking to the speed limits or even going slower than the speed limits. But I'm afraid that he's harking back to an age that I don't think is going to be a permanent return, but rather a temporary one to the age maybe in the 20s and 30s when people went for a drive, or even actually when I was a kid in the 50s and 60s, my, my, my father would occasionally say, oh, let's go for a drive. It's something that I don't think that anybody does uh, today. And I don't think we really want to too much uh, encourage that because it will just clog up the roads. And in any case, it's not really feasible today to imagine that we are going to get back to a stage where the roads are empty enough uh, to enjoy once this crisis is over. But Christian, I suppose the worry is that public transport will be discouraged. I mean, it already is, and maybe it'll be less popular when this is over. Uh, yes, I mean, there, there, there is basically a fundamental question about whether our hypermobility can return, whether this kind of thing that we've really not considered the impact of transport either on other people or on the world in general. And just, you know, transport has been very cheap. So we've just travelled pretty much anywhere without really much thought about whether it is necessary or desirable. So I think this pandemic will definitely knock back some business travel, some leisure travel. We might kind of decide to take holidays uh, nearer home. We certainly might travel to work less. And part of that is a good thing. Part of that, people will go and jump on their bikes and uh, walk and, and whatever, and that will be great. And part of it will be disastrous if, as Boris Johnson said only on Sunday, you know, don't use public transport, but jump in your car. And that will have a, a, a terrible impact on particularly urban settings, but, uh, you know, on the pollution that we've... Uh, has been wonderfully cleared in the last few weeks. Alexander, when Christian talks about this previous age of driving, when driving was a pleasure in itself, I mean, presumably since then, it's what happened has been what you called a war on the car, especially in cities like London. Can you explain what you mean by that? By the, by the war on the car, I would, I, I would describe that as consistent set of policies from government, uh, central government and local government designed to discourage uh, car use, but particularly by uh, imposing charges on, on individual users, rather than, for example, trying to incentivize people to, to move to cleaner transport, either by, by subsidizing rail further or, or, for example, you know, investing in electric vehicle infrastructure. I mean, vehicle excise duty has, has gone up and up for cars. In, for example, my own London borough of Camden, they recently increased the residence permits by 70%, which is a staggering increase. You know, mine went up from £170 to £290 in a single year. Now, if you are just, you know, using a car for, solely for pleasure, then actually I'm inclined to agree with Christian to an extent that perhaps we don't want lots of people using cars for that particular use. It's probably hard to argue that that's particularly beneficial for society. Of course, though, there are people who, who really do need their cars. TfL's own impact assessments for their, for their ULES policy 
showed that there would be a disproportionate impact on night shift workers because public transport networks at night aren't you know, sort of at the same capacity and breadth that they are in, in the daytime. Also for disabled people as well, people with less mobility who really do rely on their, on their cars you know, to go and see friends and do things that really sort of keep them active and, and living fulfilled lives. Um, are also getting penalised by, by these kind of policies. Given, for example, technology is improving, the cars have become cleaner anyway, and we're now discouraging people to move away from diesel vehicles, which is very good for air quality in urban cities, it doesn't seem necessary to be attacking the petrol car in particular, given the, the negligible improvements to air quality by reduction of the petrol car usage, and also the negligible impact on emissions. And why not target other sources of pollution and, and other sources um, that have negative effects on air quality? For example, construction in London is a big one. And you've also got to think about the sort of burdens that you're imposing people. Is it right to impose so much burden on the individual as opposed to companies who may have more ability to pay for these things? Or should the burden kind of fall on, on society as a collective rather than particular individuals? Christian, what do you make of that? <laughs> um, uh, let, let me say that I think uh, Alexandra is dismissing what is the problem of the commons. Right? The problem of the commons is, you know, when you had a common and everybody had their sheep and uh, there were too many sheep and they all ate the grass and then nobody could then feed their sheep any longer. And that's absolutely the same with car. We have to have policies that discourage car use in urban areas. And yes, of course, you can cite examples of people who are disproportionately affected. That's the case with any form of tax, any form of limitation. Night workers, yes, it's a bit unfortunate. People with disabilities, although they uh, have some tax relief and, and whatever. But the fundamental notion that we've had a war on the car is just fanciful. I mean, for start, Yes, vehicle excise duty has gone up a bit and some parking charges have gone up a bit, but fuel tax duty, which is the one that really would have an impact in ensuring that people did not make the wrong sort of car journeys, discourage them from useless car journeys, has not been changed in 10 years. And in an urban setting like uh, Camden and other inner London areas, something like 40 or 50% of journeys are under two miles. So you've got to discourage those sort of journeys through parking policies, through various forms of taxation, because effectively everybody using their car creates greater numbers of externalities for other users, both in terms of congestion, in terms of pollution, in terms of cluttering up the streets with objects uh, made of metal. I mean, one of the thing, ma amazing things of this pandemic and the effects of it is to see the streets liberated, to see with so little traffic, people walk in the streets, they cycle with their kids in the streets. It's an absolute transformation. We must build on that and not suggest that, oh, the poor car users, you know, have to have the right to drive their cars at 30 miles an hour along our residential streets. I mean, I would just say that bicycles are sort of hunking bits of metal as well. So, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> much smaller, but there's a lot of them. <laughs> and more and more these days. <laughs> 
Christian, on, on bicycles, from your position as a journalist and as a political creature, what do you think about policy when it comes to cycling after this pandemic? Do you think we will see more cycle lanes and things geared towards that sort of thing? Oh my God, another pun. Well, I mean, this is a fantastic opportunity, right? I mean, what this pandemic has shown is that if people are not scared of being run over, they will actually take uh, to their bikes And that has enormous transformational effects in every possible way. Cycling is beneficial in terms of people's health. It's beneficial in terms of the environment. It gets people fit. And it's actually the reason why, one of the reasons why I use it, it's the fastest way to get round town for journeys of maybe between up to five or six or seven miles. So if we manage to get more people cycling, we will not only have a good impact on transport and therefore reduce the impact on public transport, reduce the impact on roads because they take up so much less space, but also probably most important, have a fantastically beneficial effect on people's health and and reduce obesity and improve fitness. Alexander and Christian, thanks very much. And that's it for this week. As well as all these brilliant pieces, in this week's issue you'll also find a diary from Joan Collins, Rod Liddell in defence of the lockdown, and Leifa Bothnot's author's notebook. If you haven't been able to get your hands on a print issue of The Spectator, remember all print subscribers are also able to access all our articles online during the lockdown. And if you are not a subscriber at all, what are you waiting for? Just go to spectator.co.uk forward slash charger to get a free subscription to The Spectator as well as a free wireless charger. Thanks for listening and join us again next week. Music.